Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday 15th of December, Andy Martin taught two sessions at Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions where Andy gave us an overview of the Old Testament prophets in the Bible. Andy is based in Birmingham but spends most of his time training and equipping church leaders in some of the toughest places in the world to be a Christian. Let's take a listen to the session. Morning everyone. (coughs) Good to see you. Uh, I know I've travelled much further north of Manchester, when I, Birmingham, when I come up on the train with two coats and arrive to teach the morning on theology, and there's a gentleman on the front row wearing shorts and sandals. <laughs> and also on the table is another pair of flip-flops with no socks. And uh, well done, guys. So we, it's true, you're all much harder uh, than us in the south. What's funny, I used to live in Bedford um, and then moved to Birmingham and friends in the church said to us, wow, you're really going north, aren't you? <laughs> they really don't understand in the south. They really, really don't. Birmingham, they thought... You're from Reading. Good man. It's good that you left. Um, <laughs> I've got friends, friends in Reading. Well, they were friends. Um, bit of background for me. Um, so... I've been around in our group of churches, New Frontiers, for many years as a pastor. Been involved with church planting um, uh, in the UK. Uh, but uh, many, many years ago now, as we as a movement started to get more intentional about making Jesus known in parts of the world where he isn't known, um, among Muslim peoples, for example, uh, a couple in our church got called by God to go to Turkey and be one of our very first teams. Um, and I got very involved in helping make that happen, together with David Devonish, a name some of you will know, one of our main leaders in the movement. Um, and uh, I went over to do... Oh, we've got... The microphone's coming now. It's working. You waiting for this man, were you? Yes. He's saved the day. <laughs> yeah, there you go. All good. So for those of you that were hoping you couldn't hear at the back, you now can and got no excuse. But as Andy helpfully said, you can have coffee to keep you awake. Thanks for the intro, Andy, that we're going to need additional stimulants uh, as we look at the prophets together. So anyway, I got involved with helping uh, get these guys ready and uh, form a team, which was heading to Turkey. Um, I'd had my own kind of heart uh, over the years (coughs) for that kind of work, Um, but it was fairly dormant until I got off the plane and saw Istanbul and my heart just broke. Um, and seeing uh, areas of the city, huge areas of the city, bigger than Manchester, not the whole city, I'm talking about a district, where there's no church and no believers. Um, Sorry. When I went to Reading, it worked. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So <laughs> I'll carry on a little bit with my story. Um, I then got more and more involved in that kind of work. Um, still being a pastor here in England, traveling out a little bit, 
Um, I'm married to a lady called Heather. I've got five children um, who are adults now, pretty much. Um, two of them are overseas uh, in Turkey now. Our eldest daughter is uh, looking at heading to Iraq. Um, so that whole kind of overseas thing um, is just running through our family now. It's so got into us. Um, over the years, uh, people around me said, look, it'd be good if you could do this more uh, full-time. I ended up moving to Bedford, working with David Devonish for a while, um, helping to recruit, train, send people overseas um, to Muslim contexts, um, and, and now lead our work, really, with a team of others. Um, I'm based in Birmingham, with the idea of that being a, a base to kind of do the work from there, uh, I'm an elder in the church, but have very little local responsibility now. I led one of the sites for a while, multi-site church, but now released to do this. So most of this year I've spent in the Middle East. So that, that's my background, just to help you. Um, <clears throat> but kind of pastor by training, if that makes sense. We're going to look at the prophets today. And if you look in your... It, it, don't do it now, but when you look in your Bibles, it's the group of people that kind of appear... After, um, after the Psalms and, uh, and that section, you begin to get with Isaiah. Um, and then you go all the way through, so Jeremiah and others, and then finish with Malachi. Uh, that's not the order they appeared in. We'll look at that in a, in a while. But that's the section. Um, and there's a lot of them. And we've only got about, I don't know, probably an hour left now uh, to look at all of those. So what I want to do is give you an overview um, touching on, on them individually just a little bit, rather than kind of try and go quickly with a kind of synopsis of each one, which would kind of help, but you could read that in a study Bible. What I want to do is give an overview, but then draw out themes. What can we learn? What are some of the themes that come through? Um, and then provoke us to think about that for us today. I think that will be most helpful. Um, Firstly, let's just put this in the context of what's going on. The Bible is a collection of stories. And, and as you have been learning through um, this course, there's different types of literature. There's history, there's prophetic, there's poetry. Um, but primarily what the Bible is, isn't, a, in my opinion, the way I like to put it, it's not primarily a book of instructions. It's not primarily a book of laws. And then Jesus brings another set of laws. It's a collection of stories and writings where God is making himself known. And it's a collection of stories where God literally made himself known to someone called an Abraham, or a Moses, or a Deborah. And that, that's what it is. Now, yes, of course, there's instructions. And as Paul says in the New Testament, every word is useful for teaching and growing us. Um, and yes, we often when we talk about you know, what gives us life and, and how we know God. We'll talk about this book and it's holy. But it's ever so important for us to remember what it is and, and recorded initially orally. That's not my subject today, but it is relevant. So they weren't writing to start with. So with the prophets, for example, um, some of them, as we'll see, had incredible dreams. Others of them, we don't know how God spoke to them. Um, and some of it would have been written down um, scribes would have written it for them, but a lot of it simply would have been spoken out and then passed on orally. And certainly a lot of the stories in the Bible would have been like that. So God, you know, we can tend to think, oh, God gave us a book. No, he didn't. God appeared. 
people talked about it, and that gave us the book. Does that make sense? Now, it's still from God, and every word is inspired. And every word is, brings truth and life to us. But God didn't set out to give us a library. He set out to make himself known. And Jesus, as Hebrews tells us, is the full revelation of God making himself known. And many of the prophets are pointing to that time. But what we're looking at today is dynamic life interactions with a God coming and making himself known. And that's what the Bible is. It's God to Abraham making a piece of him known. And and it's amazing how Abraham responds when he doesn't know everything that we know about God. And we forget that too. One of the things I like to imagine that Abraham, because this tells us God spoke to Abraham and said, leave father, homeland, and go to the land of Elshay. And he goes home and tells Sarah. Is what, how, how did that go? First question. First question. And this is, none of this is in my notes. I do this. Andy asked me for notes. I thought, he doesn't know me. Um, we, some of it will be relevant. We'll, we will get to that. So first question Sarah probably would have had is, which God? Because we think, oh yeah, it's the God we know that Jesus has made known to us. The God of the book. Abraham didn't have a book. So maybe that's the first question you had to work out, well, which God are you? Because there have been other gods being worshipped. I don't know how he solved that one. Just leave that question there. Ask the next person who comes and lectures. <laughs> but something in that encounter of God making himself known touched Abraham deeply because it says, so he obeyed and left. Amazing. And that's what the book is. I mean, I'm saying this right at the beginning to, to put what we're looking at in that context. So creation, everything's beautiful, perfect. God looks at it and says, oh, it's good. Um, and then we know sin comes. And man, Adam and Eve, decide they're not going to listen to God and decide they're going to eat the wrong food. Um, and that, the Bible's all about food, by the way. The reason sin came into the world is because we chose the wrong lunch. That's, the, the story teaches us something. It's really important. We're made in God's image, we're made to steward and care for the earth, and we're made hungry. We don't always talk about that one. Because when you look at the story, one of the first things God says is, here's all the food for you. You can eat of all of these plants. All of this is for you. Have whatever you like. Just not that one. And what do we do? To satisfy our appetite and hunger, which is what the story is teaching us, we choose to feed on something which God hasn't given us. And that's the heart of sin. And I know there's other questions about the garden and what did it mean by the fruit of the tree opening our eyes and making us like, I know all of that's there. But fundamentally, you read that to an Eastern person who knows what it is to farm the land, who knows what it is that unless they get good rains and good summers, they're not going to be able to eat and feed their family and feed the village. They will tell you this is about life and where life comes from. And this is about how we're going to sustain ourselves. This is about what's good for us. And it's about eating what God has given us and our appetites. That's what's going on in Genesis. See, all of this is thrown in. I haven't got to the prophet yet. So, and then, but God, in his beautiful mercy, starts a rescue plan. And eventually you get to Abraham, I've just referred to. Because God, he still wants a people that he can love and be amongst. And he says to Abraham, you're going to become a great people. And of course, we then get to when that happens, some generations after Abraham. And then they're in Egypt. And God uses one of Abraham's descendants to be a real blessing to Egypt. But then Egypt 
uh, generation or so later, then start oppressing God's people. So God rescues them and takes them out into the desert, away from Egypt, and away from where initially God's promise to Abraham had ended up blessing this great nation. Um, oh, just to make you jealous, I was in Egypt last week. Um, that's not why I'm telling this story. Um, um, the friends we were visiting, because we're looking to um, get a team there. We've got people there already, but we need to strengthen the team. And on our last morning before we flew out, they took us to the oldest pyramid. At 5,000 years old. It's amazing. And um, so that, some of that stuff takes back to some of these stories that I'm telling you. Um, and God brings them out and uh, says, you're going to be a holy people, and here's how I want you to live. And he gives them the law through Moses. These are instructions, um, and wide-ranging instructions, um, including what to do if you touch a dead donkey. Um, very helpful. Um, and a lot of it is all around being a people, setting up a nation, cleanliness, um, but it's also about sin and righteousness and following God's commands. Um, and then, as we know, as you read through the stories, um, the, the people want a king, they want a ruler, they're, they're not happy just to let God rule them. Um, and they want a king, and then there's good kings and bad kings. And then we get to David, who you know, we tend to think was a good king, but look at his life. Uh, he's a man who loved God, but he was flawed. Um, and then his son Solomon rules. And then after Solomon, um, due to family uh, issues and other things happening, there's a power struggle, and the 12 tribes separate. And Judah goes away separately, um, and then the rest are kind of still called Israel. And then we get into the prophets. Um, and the prophets, people sent by God, which we're going to look at, some of them are talking to Judah, and some of them are talking to Israel. And the page in your note shows you which ones are which, and we'll look at that in a minute. So some are talking to Judah, some are talking to the rest of the tribes. And the whole point is, is God is saying, look, I've shown you how to live. This is who you are. I've made a covenant, and will you please obey the covenant? Will you please follow me? Because what God was wanting to do was to have a people that he would be the center at, he would be in relationship with, he would be worshipped by them, he would put his love and affection to them, but then through how they lived, all the other peoples in the world would look and see, hang on, there's a different way to live now. We worship these gods, and that may involve sex with temple prostitutes that may involve child sacrifice and it did um, and involve all kinds of things but Israel was meant to be a people that looked very different and the laws were so that they could be a light to the nations because God's rescue plan was to work through his people it's amazing it includes you and me it's always been his plan it's one of the great mysteries one of, you know, people sometimes say if God's real and God's loving, one of the great mysteries is, is why is there suffering? I think that's, you can answer that. What's harder to answer is why does he work through us? And I'm not being flippant. That's the amazing thing the Bible teaches us, is God is faithful to the people he's made in his image, who are to reflect his glory into this earth, who are made to steward and care for this earth. And he's not going back on what he started. He destroyed it once in the flood and said, I'm not going to do it that way. And then he calls Abraham and wants the people. And what the prophets are doing, staying up big picture before we get into the detail, is coming to God's people and say, come on, remember who you are. Live like this. You're meant to be a light to the nations. God's mercy is for everybody, not just for you. And what the Old Testament 
Um, has this whole year been on the Old Testament? Yeah. I'll sum it up for you. So I'm giving an overview, which someone else probably would have taken a whole morning on. And I've just done it in five minutes. Um, so the whole overview of what God is wanting to do. But a big part of what the Old Testament teaches us is that no matter how much God is merciful, no matter how much he's kind, no matter how much he's gracious, no matter how much he speaks, the sinful heart will always turn from him. And you look at some of the people we celebrate as heroes, rightly. You know, people like an Abraham or a Moses or a David. And many of them, their lives finish not as good as what they started. Or in the middle of it, terrible things happen. And God has mercy on them. And many of them turn back and find God again. But many don't. And the, one of the main things of the Old Testament is we are really, really broken. And God is really, really faithful. But despite his faithfulness to us, we will still sin. We will still have other idols. We will still worship other things. We will still think we can do things in our strength and our power. And the whole story is getting ready for when God himself comes in Jesus. That's the Old Testament. And in the middle, not quite the middle, but you get these prophets sent by God. And that's who we're looking at. But it's important to understand the context, important to understand why they're coming. Um, there's a mixture in some of them. Some of them say some pretty dark things. Talk about cities being slaughtered. Talk about people being killed if they don't turn. Um, use kind of pretty dark language and images. Um, and many Christians would kind of wish a bit like a bad blog post. Can Google delete it, please? Um, can Google delete the bad press and everything else? Sometimes Christians feel like that about the prophets. You know, how are we supposed to reach 21st century uh, UK, people in Manchester, people you work with, live with, study with at uni and stuff? Can we just rip some pages out about the prophets, please? Because it kind of conveys God as a really angry, bad-tempered, grumpy ruler. Um, we don't like that. Um, and much nicer with Jesus. Um, but actually, some of that language is poetic and, and, and was God expressing anger, but actually, in the end, wasn't fulfilled. Because there's other language about how in the end he will send someone and they will receive his judgment in order that we don't have to. So there's also beautiful language about deserts springing forth into life, captives being set free, the oppressed being released, justice coming, mercy coming. So you get this mixture in the prophets and it's not always easy to understand or not terribly palatable. We'll touch on that a little bit. Um, feel free to ask questions as we go, by the way, once we get into some of that stuff. Because I deliberately want to provoke us on some things, but there won't be time to answer it. But the whole point is you're going to do this well, and you are doing it well, is that your teacher should help you think some of these things through for yourself as well. And not simply say, oh, it's hit this, but actually raise some things that you can wrestle with in Scripture <laughs> and hear God on. Um, so there's this huge mixture in the prophets. And what's also challenging is trying to work out when were some of the things they were foretelling fulfilled? And one of the things we see, and I'm not going to give you examples today, but um, there were more than one fulfillment. Um, the coming of Jesus, well, the easiest one is Jesus coming for the first time and Jesus coming for the second time. And we'll come back to that a bit later. So trying to understand when was this fulfilled. Some things are, are clear. If uh, a city or a nation is talked about being, or a people group rather than a nation, is being talked about God judging, history documents, oh, that happened. This army came, but there's other things where it's harder to pinpoint when it was fulfilled. So there's a whole mixture in this. Um, but let's talk about who they are. So 
this gentleman here, you can be Joel for us. I hope you come. Most of us are going to end up at the front in this. But I just thought, at this point, we... Um, so here's Joel. And uh, let me just get into the right page here. So Joel could be one of the earliest prophets. Now, it, it's divided, really, among scholars. So some would say, you can see in your notes, kind of 800 years before Jesus coming. Some would put him 300 years later. And I, I think the consensus is leaning more that way in terms of the things Joel talks about and references, because that's how they date things, is by what events are they talking about, and are they talking about things that have already happened, or are they talking about things that are about to happen, and therefore you can work out, well, this was going on, so he must have been about that time. Some of the prophets are easier to date, because they actually talk about kings and rulers, and so you've got other historical records that say, well, they must have been around then. So Joel is one of the harder ones to pinpoint, um, and Joel was speaking to Judah. So this piece of the room is Judah, that tribe, and, and this is Israel. So we'll go with Joel kind of being one of the earliest ones. Um, and he, uh, his name means Yahweh is God. Um, some of the themes, one of the big themes that runs through Joel, a couple of the other prophets as well, is something called the Day of the Lord. So it's called a day when God will come in righteousness and judgment and destroy Israel's enemies. And that became a big thing, so that when uh, Jews were waiting for God to come, um, particularly when Rome was in power, and I think, well, God come now. And when God does come, there'll be judgment, our enemies will be destroyed, Israel will be vindicated, we'll be great again like we were under the time of David. So that's how they interpreted the day of the Lord. Um, but the day of the Lord would involve judgment, would involve terrible things. Joel talks about that. The other thing that Joel talks about is also in that day, this Holy Spirit will be poured out on lots of people, on all flesh. And that, of course, is the prophecy that Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2. So in the New Testament, Jesus has returned to the Father, and he said, wait until the Holy Spirit comes. And then the Holy Spirit is poured out, tongues of fire, wind, and then Peter gets up, and everyone thinks they're drunk. Um, and Peter says, it's only nine in the morning. Um, it's not like Manchester. Um, no one's drunk here, nine in the morning. Um, this, is, this is what Joel talked about. So that's Joel. Those are, are some of his themes. So if you can stay there, Joel. Thank you very much. I think he looks like Joel. I think, you know, wild prophet, kind of out on his own. <clears throat> I could have said worse things. So um, let's come to, to one you'll know. Um, and this was to Israel. So uh, this gentleman here. You can be Jonah. You stand over here. So, I don't know why you're looking so happy. A big fish is about to come and eat you. Good. That's a good choice. So, this is Jonah. And, of course, what Jonah is about um, is a story. So, the, the kind of prophet and the messages come through a story. So, Joel is, like lots of the prophets, um, is writing things or speaking things out, which then got written down a little bit later in his case. Um, and there's not a story really going with it. But Jonah comes through, as does Daniel a bit later, through a story. We know about Jonah's life. And God calls him to go to Nineveh, um, who are worshipping idols and would be seen as kind of enemies and a terrible city. And Jonah's problem is, God, they don't need saving, they need judging. And, and why are you going to have compassion on them? And that's Jonah's struggle. And Jonah would be kind of one of Israel's first missionaries. And God, quite early on in the story, saying, I'm, I'm here for other peoples. 
And I am merciful. Yes, I'm holy. Come on to that later. And yes, there's judgment if people don't live the way they really should live, which is for the benefit of everybody, not just to keep him happy, but the way life's going to work. Um, and so Jonah argues with all of this. The theme really is God's mercy and his compassion. Um, and Jonah would be kind of around about 750 years, and that would be pretty accurate in terms of 750 years before Christ. Um, in a similar kind of time frame, um, speaking uh, on, on different themes is Amos. You can be Amos. Thank you. And uh, Amos would be a shorter book, a little bit after Jonah, but that kind of time frame. And um, Amos, don't know a huge uh, amount about him. Um, the theme, again, is justice, but particularly God's compassion for the poor. So there's beautiful passages in there about God being a shepherd for the poor, about God's, theologians would say, his bias for the poor. Um, and those themes come through. It's a great book to read, to stir your heart sometimes and meditate on in terms of what the church is here for. Uh, more of that later. Um, Hosea, this is a stunning one. Again, these people are talking to Israel. So Judah hasn't got anybody at the moment. Just Joel. We're counting on you, Joel. Loving the enthusiasm. Hosea. So, um, Andy, you can be Hosea. <laughs> Bit of a sinister laugh there. <laughs> Andy's Hosea. <laughs> Again, pretty close in time, within 10 to 40 years probably. And um, this is an amazing story. Because basically one of Israel's huge problems was they just weren't faithful to God. And they would keep turning to worship other idols. Or they wouldn't keep themselves pure and would marry people from other nations and from other peoples. And the issue God had with that was if you did that, you'll end up worshipping their gods. Wasn't that God was against marriage? Wasn't that God didn't want them having families? But he knew that if, particularly because marriage would be buying into a contract with a whole family. It wasn't just the individualistic thing that we see it today in this part of the world. Um, in other parts of the world, it, it, it's still pretty much like it was in Bible times. There's a whole family, a whole tribe thing coming together, uh, a whole recognition of different peoples coming together. And God knew that if Israel kept doing that, they'd worship other... And that's what kept happening. And Israel were incredibly unfaithful. So Hosea... His prophecies were spoken, but they were lived out. He was one of the prophets um, who had to act out what God was saying. So God told him to marry a prostitute. And the, it accounts, not in detail, obviously, but how Hosea's wife would then go and be with other men. And the whole community would know that. And think, Hosea, why have you married her? You know who she is. Um, not only was the moral issue, but there was the issue of purity in terms of God's law. How could Hosea be a mouthpiece for God when he's breaking God's law? And Hosea would stand up and say, this is Israel, this is what you're like. And I'm going to be like God, and I'm going to be faithful to my wife. She's unfaithful, but I will be faithful. It's a powerful, beautiful, and if you let it touch you, gut-wrenching story. Well, we might not worship literally other idols. We're not the most faithful of people, if we're honest. You think of the things that catch our affection sometimes. You think sometimes of our ambition and financial security or wanting to do well in work or if we're single, not knowing they're content because we're longing for 
uh, a husband or a wife, and the church doesn't help us with that. We need to recover the idea that singleness for Jesus is just as fruitful as marriage. And I'm married with a beautiful family and five kids. Um, but the Bible really emphasizes singleness too. And that can create a discontent in some of us and, and longings that we don't turn to God for. Now, I'm not suggesting that we're unfaithful as unfaithful as the people of Israel were, but we need to let some of these prophetic messages touch us today and not just think this is an ancient message and now we have Jesus, as we'll refer to a little bit later, but I'm bringing it now. Some of these themes the church still needs to hear. And Hosea had to live this. What a call. I mean, imagine that. People like uh, Joel and others, you won't be on your own for long, there's others coming, Joel. People like Joel and others got to proclaim things. Some of them would have endured persecution, but they were basically preaching, if you like. Hosea had to live this out. Powerful message of God's faithfulness, his mercy, and his love. So those would be some of the kind of smaller prophets. And um, then coming into kind of, I see on your notes, 740 years to kind of 680 years, you get some of the ones who we might think of as the more heavy hitters. So you, you can come be Isaiah. And Isaiah is still over here, speaking to Israel. Isaiah's name, so over here for Israel, um, means uh, Yahweh is salvation, and the whole message is about salvation. Um, Isaiah obviously prophesies about a coming Messiah, uh, or later who they saw was the Messiah. Um, Talks about... Um, one sitting on David's throne, a text that we'll read this Christmas, read every Christmas, is of the increase of his government and power, there'll be no end. But also talks about one who will be crushed, um, one who God will, will judge. Um, again, plenty of themes of uh, justice again, uh, turning back from idolatry. One of the interesting things around Isaiah, um, Bible scholars will always argue as to who the author is. Old Testament, New Testament, um, and there's, sometimes there's compelling reasons for that in terms of the, the, when the documents are dated from or how many references we have to that person really writing it. This comes in with Isaiah quite a lot. Numbers of scholars would argue that Isaiah was written by three people because the, the, it, the sections that clearly change in their style. You wouldn't pick that up in the English, but in, in the original, it clearly changes in its style. And also some of the themes seem to change or some of the things it's referencing. You think, could one person have been around for that amount of time? So some people argue for two authors, some people argue for three. Um, And then some would say, no, you can reconcile this, there's no reason why Isaiah couldn't write in different ways. And you'll you'll hit this when you get into New Testament next year with some of Paul's letters. Some say, oh, this doesn't sound like Paul. Um, And uh, I think the, the thing with Isaiah, the way... I think it's helpful to answer that. There's more recent scholarship coming through on this now. It's the whole thing of orality and the way that so much of the early um, old, of the Old Testament was actually communicated orally and didn't get written down until later. Or if it did get written down, people weren't reading it because they couldn't read. It would be written down because it was important and the educated, some of the rulers, could then keep it and then make sure it's read to the people and there's, there's that story, isn't there, where in Ezra, where the law was read to the people, but most people couldn't read, so it was communicated orally. And these, some of these prophets had scribes, and, and we, in a couple of them were told who it is, who wrote things down for them. So it's, 
the authorities for us in the way we work, post-enlightenment and everything else, for a document to be authentic, it needs to have been dated, and there's tests you can do for that, and are there other people who reference it, some of the events, are there multiple sources that confirm what happened? They didn't think that way. In oral cultures, and still some of the world today, they're not thinking about proof in the way we're thinking for proof. It's a different worldview, and this is hard for us as Westerners, particularly hard as evangelical Christians, because you think, hang on, Andy, what are you telling me? You're going to be able to tell me that there's not the proof I thought there was that these people were real. Yes. But it doesn't mean there wasn't proof. Because what happened in oral cultures, very community-based, very family-based, tribal-based, so very much together, not just individuals, the authority, someone spoke and said, I'm representing Isaiah, you, as a community, would say, yes, you're talking, those are clearly Isaiah's words. And you'd receive it. Because you'd have met Isaiah, known Isaiah, known the way he talked, you'd be very familiar with Isaiah. And your memory would be able to contain that and hold that. Because you're not being bombarded with loads of information like we are today. You know, if I said to, to one of you, oh, some of you got Tim Simmons, do you know Tim Simmons' telephone number? Some say, yeah, I do. Get your phone out and have a look. You don't know it at all. Of course you don't. You know where to find it. Or if I said to some of you, have you got a recipe for making a good Christmas cake? Yeah, I know a recipe. You don't know it at all. You know where to look it up. Does that make sense? And in rural cultures, what you knew is what was in here. And you could remember whole chunks. So um, Homer's Odyssey, kind of a Greek piece of literature, that was an oral poem. And it's really long. And people could recite it off by heart. People would go and sit in a room like this and listen to someone perform. And, and they had learnt it, not just because they're an actor like the script. No, that's, that's how you recalled it. That's what you did. You didn't stand and read it. It was passed on generation to generation. That view, that understanding is beginning to change how we look at authors of Bible scriptures. Because it's possible that there are different people delivering Isaiah's message which is why the style is different. Does that make some sense? Now, that's only just coming through now with greater credibility in evangelical circles um, with books, papers being published on it. Um, But I think the whole... So we've known for years about orality. We're beginning to understand how truth, how accounts, how history was verified by the community together saying, yes, that we know that's true. My father knew Isaiah. Yeah, we, we know that, that that's true. And, and uh, our family knew him and, and all of those things. Now, to us, you kind of think, oh, I want proof, a written document, dated. And, and all the things that they would do at Oxford University to date a document, I want that. Well, they didn't have that. And God was inspiring it and God was in the process. And the community that, in the end, signed off on Isaiah, whatever that looked at, were happy that that was Isaiah. Does that make sense? And remember, this was a community of God's people wanting to know God's truth. And some of it wasn't palatable, and they still said it was Isaiah. It wasn't like Isaiah turning up and saying, oh, you're a lovely bunch of people, and remember how much God really loves you, and you're God's favourites. Oh, yeah, let's, let's write this down, remember, like Isaiah. No, the language of the prophets isn't terribly nice sometimes, but it still made it in as this is the word of the Lord. So I hope that that's helpful. And that's particularly relevant to Isaiah, because people say, oh, there's possibly three authors. Some would still argue there's one, without getting onto the orality stuff. 
Um, but it's relevant to the others as well. Yeah. Judah column and your bit of paper. So I may put him in the wrong place. He is. Should be over there. Thank you. Well done. Absolutely. And you should have some company soon. Thank you. As I, okay. At the same time is Micah. You can be Micah. Now Micah's over here. Are you sure? I'm, yeah, definitely sure. <laughs> definitely sure. It's written down. It must be true. And, it, and, and it's on an iPad. It must be true. So it should, is it not parallel to... Should be parallel to the date of Isaiah, 740 to 680, sometimes in that time. So Isaiah speaking to Judah, and then Micah is turning up. Um, much, much shorter book. Um, his name means who is like Yahweh. Again, lots of um, pronouncements about God's judgment, turn back to him, but a lot on forgiveness as well. If you do, then there's forgiveness. Um, and he foretells a shepherd king few verses that talk about one day there'll be a new shepherd coming um, and he will be a king, the shepherd king. This is like David, of course. And as we know, um, he's foretelling Jesus. Okay, let's keep going. Seems to have got cold. Has it got cold in here? Yeah. Hasn't it? I thought so. Yeah, we'll get the heaters back on again. So we're heading for coffee. That's good news. So Zephaniah. Uh, do you, want to be Ze- you can be Zephaniah. <laughs> Zephaniah, this is a great meaning, means Yahweh is hidden. So coming at a time, you know, is, is heaven silent? Where is Yahweh? You're here. You're, you're with these guys. Um, and Zephaniah also talks about the day of the Lord. So there's this kind of, the name means God is hidden. Um, and so that could be prophetic in itself. Israel could be thinking, as, or Judah could be thinking, you know, has God forgotten us? Where is God? Um, but then talks about God will come, there will be judgment, enemies will be destroyed, but again, you must turn to him. Um, and talks a lot about there is blessing if you return, if you come back. So some prophets are just like, you must come back, and there's judgment if you don't. Some prophets are, come back, there's restoration, there's blessing, God will receive you, there's mercy. So that's Zephaniah. And then also on this side was Jeremiah. So, someone come up, do you want me to join by? You're going to end up at the front, but I hope this is just a helpful kind of visual to get you what's, what's going on. So, Jeremiah, again, is a little bit later now. So, we're getting closer to the time of Jesus, but all within a kind of similar time frame. This is only 20 years after Zephaniah. And Jeremiah, we've got some biography. He's called to be a prophet when uh, he's younger. So, we've got a lot more biography. You, it's as long as Isaiah, but we know a lot more about Jeremiah. Jeremiah had a really hard time acting things out, um, talking about judgment coming. There's a load of persecution that he went through. Um, we don't know that the others were persecuted. Maybe they were, but Jeremiah definitely was, because he writes about it. Um, and at the beginning of his call is, you know, no one's going to listen to you. I want you to be a prophet. No one's going to listen. That's pretty miserable. And, but Jeremiah signs up for it and keeps going. Um, and again, lots of talk about judgment, but language that begins to come through, which we pick up later in Ezekiel as well, of God doing something new. I'm going to make a new covenant, ever so important, in terms of what that would have meant or been understood that time. You've got this covenant with Moses, you've got the law. Uh, Jeremiah starts talking about a new covenant coming and how God will write the law on people's hearts. 
Now, we know what that means. We used to, we just say, yeah, of course. That's radical. Now, the law's written on tablets of stone. And, and it used to be kept in the tabernacle. And the high priests could see it. What do you mean God's going to write law on hearts? What, are, are we not going to have these tablets? Are we not going to have all of this? And Jeremiah starts to, to talk like that, of something new is going to happen. Um, while he's hanging around... Um, in Judah, we get Nahum around a similar time. Um, you can be Nahum. Nahum is all about Nineveh. So that place that responded when Jonah did go and preach, Nineveh are now turning back. And it's not like, although God loves them, if you, if you stand, stand with Micah, come over this side. So God's now saying, come on. You know, you turn to me, I have mercy on you, but now you're neglecting me. Now you're turning away from me. And judgment's going to come to Nineveh. And that's, that's the sole message. We know very little about Nahum other than he just spoke to that city. So, again, it, don't try and remember the story. So Jonah comes, there's mercy, but then they turn from God, and God says, you're going to turn back. And he sends a prophet. Um, all of these are things we'll come back to. Yep. What principle? I think I know what you mean, but just... We'll come back to that later. Let me finish this, and then we'll try and pick that up in the, after the coffee break, because it's a very important question. Um, so, Jeremiah also wrote Lamentations, we think. Some scholars would say, no, it's best saying, we don't know who the author is, but others would say 50-50, not that I've read them all. But the, the impression you get is others are clear, are happy to say, no, the early church tradition uh, that, and, and Jewish tradition is that Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. And Lamentations is a collection of songs, lots of prayers about repenting and turning back to God. Um, and it's, it's a long read, but it's worth it. It's very devotional. It's a very different kind of prophetic message and about the, the covenant relationship with God. Then, also with these guys, so you're going to win now, this gentleman here. You can be Habakkuk. So if you kind of stand here, Habakkuk's. Thank you. Habakkuk's an interesting one because he's like, some of these people have spoken about God's justice. I don't see your justice. Our enemies are being blessed. Our enemies are prospering. Where's your justice, God? You talked about a day of the Lord. Habakkuk doesn't mention the day of the Lord, but that would have been something in his thinking. Where's justice coming? And then he begins to turn and saying, but you are the just one. You are the holy one. Justice will come. So that's Habakkuk. Again, helpful to us, some of the things we would wrestle with, some of the questions people would ask, believers or not believers. If God's just, why does all this wickedness happen? Well, they ask that in Scripture too. And prophets ask that. It's the right question. And then one of the more famous ones, again, a story um, coming out of Judah is, is Daniel. So uh, this lady here, you can be Daniel. I know you're writing. But come, be, come be Daniel. And I'll remind you, seriously, I'll remind you if there's stuff you feel you miss, honestly. Everyone just needs Everyone to has to have a struggle first. Everyone needs to see your Christmas jumper, as you're the only one who turned up. <laughs> Daniel, a story. And a story of how the Israel... Uh, sorry, the, these guys are now in captivity. 
And um, Daniel continues to pray to God, doesn't join in with um, Babylon's gods. And that leads to persecution. And you get amazing stories, the lion's den, um, the fire. Um, But through that, you also then begin to get some prophetic oracles. So Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. There's other dreams that Daniel has. And that begins to give us so much of what the New Testament and what Jesus talks about with the kingdom of God. So because of the things Daniel talked about, the Jewish people began to understand even more that God would send a king. So you've got some stuff from Isaiah that talks about that, but then Daniel talks about it a lot more. And how the kingdoms of the world, this dream of the statue with different layers, and how it's brought down by this kind of small rock that then turns into a kingdom that will never, ever end. There's dates in there, so some people who are into the end times like to use the dates from Daniel and and try and predict when Jesus will come back. Um, That's a much simpler way of doing that. It's when everyone knows that there's a kingdom. That's when Jesus is coming back. And uh, don't worry about the dates. It all gets a bit confusing, especially when some of them are only around poetry and and numbers uh, imply kind of more of a poetic thing. And um, rather than literal, Jesus will come back when everybody knows. So come to Cairo and make Jesus known because we need people in Cairo and Beirut and Tunisia. Anyway, back to this. You need your coffee. Um, his name means God is my judge. Um, then Ezekiel was coming shortly after Daniel. His name, gentlemen in with the glasses there, come be Ezekiel for me. We're almost there, guys. So Ezekiel, so if you kind of come here. So God strengthens, and loads of stuff. We'll, we'll read some of, after coffee, we'll read some of the stuff Ezekiel saw, because it was amazing. Um, God's holiness, God's righteousness. Talk about how God's glory has left and has left the temple. Then incredible visions of the temple and a river flowing out into the world, and the trees are healing for the nations. And then that's the story that Revelation picks up. So you hear about it in Ezekiel, and at the end of Revelation, there's a river flowing from the throne, and there's trees. Um, and Ezekiel saw it. Um, Ezekiel had amazing visions, but his message was, God is holy. God uh, is powerful and righteous. And God's glory has left, but God's glory will come back. Um, and of course, talking about repentance and everything else. Smaller prophet in terms of what he wrote, um, Obadiah, one who serves Yahweh. And this is aimed at, do you want to you can be Obadiah for us and stand here? So remember, these people have come talking to Judah. Edom is a, a, a city, and um, Obadiah is speaking about the, the city and how judgment will come if they don't turn. So some of these are talking to a whole nation, to the whole people groups, the whole tribes. Others are talking to a city like Jonah or Nahum back to Nineveh or Obadiah talking to Edom. So you get big picture prophets about a whole group of tribes or Judah. Big picture prophets in terms of there's a king coming uh, and it will never, never end. And then some of these are just talking to one town or one city. Does that make sense? And that's why I wanted to kind of do this. Um, so you can kind of visualize it a bit more, not just see it on your piece of paper. And then final three, Haggai. So about 500 years now before the coming of uh, Jesus. Do you want to be Haggai? Hey guys, a great, again, a, a little bit of a story, but uh, I think four kind of oracles in those few chapters. So Haggai is over here. Um, and Haggai, some, there's a remnant of Israelites that have been allowed to return to the land. Um, some from Judah um, come out of exile, go back and restore the temple. 
and they kind of start but don't get anywhere and they give up. Haggai turns up and saying, you've got nice houses. Where's God's house? Build God's house. Like, but we're being oppressed. We haven't got woods. We haven't got rocks. We haven't got money. Um, but they listen. And then they start to build the house. And then he talks about, this is, uh, you know, it doesn't look like it's going to be glorious like Solomon's temple. There'll come a time when there'll be a temple which is more glorious. And it will be more stunning than even Solomon's temple. And there'll be a, a future one, which of course is talking about the church. But we'll come back to that later in terms of how do you know it's talking about the church. People would have heard it, but have thought we're going to have a huge stone building with gold and diamonds and the cedars of Lebanon uh, because it's going to be like Solomon's, but bigger and greater. So they'd have heard a literal temple with God's glory in the middle. And this will be in Jerusalem. <coughs> and maybe this will happen with the day of the Lord. Haggai doesn't mention the day of the Lord, but the people would have remembered the day of the Lord's coming and then we'll have a great temple. They'd have put this all together. So when Jesus turns up and tells them the temple's going to be destroyed, they don't think Jesus can be from God. That's why some of this is relevant. Because it's painting a picture that doesn't fit Jesus. And yet Jesus is the fulfilment of all of it. Come back to that a bit later. So while Haggai's there, we've got Zechariah over here. So do you want to come be Zechariah for us? And then this gentleman here, do you want to come up and be Malachi? And then we've time for coffee. So Zechariah, you're over here. Zechariah literally means Yahweh remembered. And you do wonder if some of these names were kind of given prophetically by their parents or God was using their name. Um, and it's a call to return. So his name means let's remember Yahweh. And a lot of his messages come back, come back. There's restoration. And of course Zechariah also talks about a king that will come. He has a promised king. And then Malachi. Where are you? Good man. Malachi um, is about remembering God's call, remember God's covenant. And he talks about some specific parts of that. He talks about bringing the whole tithe into the storehouse. God will bless you. Um, but he's trying to re- say to people, you have a covenant. Please remember it. And as well as judgment, love comes through as well. He talks about the covenant love of God. So short book and finishes the Old Testament and is the last one um, date-wise. Um, so that's accurate where he is. But the rest of them are in pretty much a different order to the dates. But that gives you a rough idea um, of who they are, what they were doing. Gives you a big picture, specific cities, some of their life story, prophetic oracles, while they're pre- reaching a city or while they're in captivity. Others of them, somehow God just giving them revelation and saying, Jeremiah, go to these tribes and tell them this. They won't listen, but tell them. Um, what did that look like? Was Jeremiah sitting in a cave, never having his hair cut, like sometimes we can imagine these prophets? I don't think so. Daniel wasn't like that. Daniel was, in the end, got brought into the palace. But somehow, God was making himself known, using their mouths, their minds, their emotions. Sometimes they acted it out, like Hosea. Ezekiel acted some things out, so did Isaiah. Some of these prophets had to walk around the city, showing their backside, which was shameful. And saying, this is a shame you're bringing to God. And some of them had to cut their beard. It was Ezekiel, I think. Cuts his beard and does something with that with a bowl. So some of them acted it out. But my question, which I've got an answer for, is how did God speak to them? Imagine being that intimate, that having that much uh, understanding and revelation. What we need to take away from this 
um, and we'll pick up after the break, is God is a God who makes himself known. And he did it through the prophets. To a town, to a tribe, to a group of tribes, to a city. And some of them talked about what God's going to do in the future. They all talked about the importance of returning to God. Straight after coffee, a little bit warmed up. And the nice, straightforward question that I said I'd come back to around mercy and judgment today. That was it, pretty much. Um, asking an ex-lecturer. So, back to my... <laughs> I don't think it's as clear-cut as some people might argue. Um, what's clear is that Jesus' death on the cross is God's judgment for sin. That's clear. Um, and Paul writes like that. Um, and Hebrews talks about you know, the price has been paid, how can you go back to sin? So it, it's very clear, and again, tying it into the prophets, Isaiah. We now understand parts of Isaiah as where God's judgment coming and someone being crushed is talking about Jesus. Um, one of the reasons why the people at that time, I referenced the day of the Lord earlier, they were expecting God's judgment to come on their enemies. Well, God's judgment did come. It came on his son. And it came, and the enemy was death. So it was a different enemy that was conquered that day. It wasn't Rome. That will happen later. Um, so again, some of these themes come through, or sorry, some of these prophetic themes are fulfilled in ways that people didn't understand then, but we now know, looking back, think, okay, Jesus is taking God's judgment for our sin. Is there still judgment in the world today? Well, I think we were just talking in the break. Romans 1, Paul talks about how God has given the world over. Well, if you want to live like that, well, then you can live like that. It's almost like God kind of lifting his hand a little bit. And that's still a kind of judgment. Still like saying, well, I'll, you keep wanting to live like this and say there isn't a God or saying if there is, well, he doesn't mind what you do and, and he'll just have mercy for you, whatever. So, okay, live like that and reap the consequences. That's a kind of judgment. That's clearly happening. Everyone, I've got a couple more things to say in a minute when it comes to the church. But everyone okay with that so far? Just trying to get some rocks in, some things which are clear from Scripture. Jesus has received the anger, wrath, judgment of God. So when people turn to him, then there is forgiveness available and not judgment. Remember, much of... The judgment, though, that we read about in the prophets and the mercy was on God's covenant people. And the equivalent of that isn't the British Isles or America or any nation. It's the church. And that's who the prophets were talking to in terms of the people of God, those who say they're in covenant relationship. We're in covenant relationship because we have a new covenant, the blood of Jesus. Um, and some, you know, the, some of you have been around a while um, well, it doesn't happen so much these days, but sometimes people will read the passage from Chronicles and talk about, if my people called by my name will return to me, I'll heal their land. And that becomes a theme in intercession prayer meetings and saying we want to see you know, the United Kingdom, not so united these days, but United Kingdom healed. We want to see our land healed. Well, then we need to repent. Now, that's, that's a message to the church. Um, and the land was the covenant land given to Israel. I'll comment on that a bit later if there's time. 
It's nothing to do with whether or not Britain's going to repent and Britain knowing economic prosperity if we turn. These messages were for the church. So the real question, so I think Romans 1 makes it clear, God's judgment is in the world because he's letting the world live how it wants and reap the consequences. Economic chaos, political chaos and everything else. What about the church? Well, if we've put our faith in Jesus, then Jesus has received God's judgment. But then what do we do with Ananias and Sapphira? So in Acts, um, there's this story, God's Holy Spirit has been poured out, there's incredible unity, there's prayer and devotion to the apostles' teaching, which would have been Jesus is the fulfillment. Everything we've just demonstrated with these prophets up here, Jesus is the fulfillment of what he's the one that they talked about. And there's this incredible sense of the presence of God, everyone was in awe, um, and then they start sharing their possessions um, so that there's no needy people among them. Um, we're going to talk later about the gifts of the Spirit, which attracts a lot of attention, and that's fine. But actually, a work of the Spirit was that everyone's needs were met. Don't talk about that so much in charismatic church life. Can I say, part of what we're passionate about is seeing the Holy Spirit work amongst us. Hallelujah! I grew up in church life where the Holy Spirit just got mentioned at the end of prayers. I kind of wondered who he was. You know, God the Father, yeah, heard about him. Um, Jesus, the Son, yeah, know about him. Sung some hymns about him. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Excuse me, what's that? We haven't kind of, don't know much about fellowship and the Holy Spirit just gets a mention. So praise God that we now will spend an hour and a half talking about the gifts of the Spirit in order that we would see them more happening in our churches. But also work of the Spirit was that there's no needy person among them. And in that context, Ananias and Sapphira lie and Peter gets a prophetic word that they're going to be killed. One of them is going to be killed because one dies and then Peter prophesies over the other one and says you'll go the same way. And that's a difficult one. I haven't got an answer. Paul talks about in Corinthians with some of the sin that they're living with and how they're doing the Lord's Supper. And he says, some of you have fallen sick because of these things. It's sobering. I'd never want to get... I'll, I'll come back to you, Paul. never want to get to the point where you kind of say, God still doesn't do some things like that. Because you see it in the New Testament. The way the New Testament talks, though, is that God, a father, disciplines a son that he loves. And it's very clear that God will discipline. But will he therefore send sickness in that way? You know, there are lots of popular teaching in charismatic circles that says, no, suffering is wrong, it's all from the devil, we shouldn't be enduring suffering. Well, the New Testament teaches something a bit different. There is suffering. Paul talks about it's in his suffering, some of which was persecution, but some of which was physical, that he knows Jesus' strength. And yes, the kingdom has come. Yes, we pray for the sick and should expect them to be healed. The manifestation of God's presence amongst us should be that the sick are healed as well as the poor care for. So I'm not shutting that one down. Absolutely, we should be seeing that and seeing it more and more. But until Jesus comes, then the kingdom comes fully. It's until that day. Now, will God use those kind of things? I think that's clear from the New Testament, yes. It's the difference between using it, working through it, getting a people's attention through it, then actually sending it. Does that make sense? Um, and so, you know, Hebrews talks about what father doesn't discipline. So I think God disciplines us. That's not the same as judgment. That's not the same as a punishment. It's the same as, come on, get your priorities right. And, and that can come through all kinds of ways, through us being, getting our attention diverted, ambitious in our job, beginning to neglect God. Then we hit a, t- a hard time um, and God's bringing us back to him. Or a church going through a difficult time, God getting our attention. But then also what goes on is spiritual warfare. You look at Paul, and in Acts, sometimes God closes the door, and other times Satan resists him. 
and somehow Paul knew the difference um, to when it was Satan resisting him and when it was the Holy Spirit saying, I don't want you to go there, I want you to go over here. So there's another dimension that there is an enemy. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We wrestle against the enemy. We needn't fear him. He that is in us is greater than he that's in the world. But there's a battle. And the enemy wants to resist the church and what the church is doing. So I think on the one hand, we can be too quick. There's two extremes in this. And Christians can be too quick. So it's the enemy. Come against him. And it's God saying, it's not the enemy. It's just you being stupid. And I'm trying to get your attention. And there's other times where we're not tuned into the supernatural and we're banging our heads against a wall with a strategic initiative in the church and we're not seeing any headway. It's because the enemy's resisting us. And we need to regroup, get hold of God, come against the enemy, not with anything weird. Just say, come on, God, give us your authority, give us your blessing. You spoke to us about this. We want to see a church planted in this place. Well, we're coming against this cancer. Come on, God, we want to see some healing here. And we need to understand both of those things. Does that make some sense? So does God still judge today? It's different now under the new covenant. God's judgment is on the world in that he withholds his hand. Does that mean specific things that happen is God judging? I don't want to go there. I don't see the New Testament going there. But neither would I want to say no for the same reason. What's clear is he's withheld his hand and is saying, I've given you over, the world over, to sinful desires. And that has consequences. The more important question is about the church. Discipline is clear, and it seems in the New Testament some things happen that God was sending a strong message that kind of looked like either a very strong discipline or some kind of judgment. I'm I'm being deliberately vague on my language because Jesus has received judgment, and there's mercy for us. But God is passionate, as we've seen from the prophets and about to get back into, passionate about his church representing his love, mercy, and righteousness. And we need to be sober about that and more sober than what we are sometimes. So that's my, that's where I've landed on it. Is that helpful? Is that answering what you're asking? You wanted to say something, Pauline? Heather. Heather, sorry. Yeah, no, it's going back to Ananias and... Um, Sapphira. Yeah. When I sort of was meditating, it actually was quite sobering and frightening because I was thinking, well, you know, they're going there. It's not that they didn't give all of it it's just that they lied to the Holy mm. Spirit yeah. but judgment was immediate yeah. and I'm wondering about the fear of God yeah. there. there was a lack of fear of God yeah. and I'm feeling we've, there is a lack of fear of God no, absolutely um, we're about to get into sorry, some of that no, no don't apologise it was just quite sobering to yeah. that you know if you lie to the Holy Spirit yeah, there can be consequences. Yeah, but um, that was the New Testament. Yeah. It was just that the judgment was so sudden. Yeah, absolutely. And I think where stories like that should take us is to not try to explain them away, not trying to say, like, oh, we know God's a God of love and he's only ever going to respond to you with love. I taught recently in another setting um, from Paul and, and Paul talking a lot about suffering. Um, and I did it in the context of, yes, there's a God of love, yes, there's healing, but Paul talks a lot about persecution and being ready to die and that taking him closer to Jesus and how strength is made perfect in weakness and we need to recover that. And then one of the leaders, so I got him into small groups, share a bit and then pray. And then I heard one of the leaders who said, oh, I don't believe God wants us to suffer. I don't believe he wants my children to suffer. He's a God of love. And you think, you read scripture 
And in both testaments, both are true, which I'm going to touch on in a minute. But yet God is love. And it's nothing like human love. And it's more pure and more beautiful and more compelling and more wooing than any love we'll ever know. But it's also more holy, which is actually getting me into some of what we're going to say. And, and there does need to be a right fear. Um, and again, we get the spectrum. You know, Christians are all doom and gloom. God's going to judge the world. Look what's happening in the world. You know, why are we jumping around singing all these praise songs? Um, you know, it's terrible what's happening. And you kind of think, oh, please. Jesus was full of joy. Kids loved him. I'm not sure I want to hang around you. Um, and then going to the other extreme where it's kind of like there's nothing but blessing. There's nothing but prosperity for you. There's nothing but health and healing. And you kind of think, no, the world is suffering. I've got, like I said, stories of people whose families have been blown up. And you, do you want to stand around and just sing happy praise songs while that's going on? You know, people of God need to hold these things together because we live in a very broken, evil, wicked world. The Bible teaches us that. The prophets, just that bit teaches us that. But with a God who loves what he's made and will not walk away from it. And his love is beautiful and compelling. And he, he can hold both of those. And it's only in the Western mind that we struggle. I mean, we just want one thing to be true. We struggle with, in a Hebrew mindset, you can have two statements which are seemingly contradictory, but both are true. And that's, that's the Hebrew mindset. And that's another subject, but that's, that's their culture. It's still true in the East today. Which is true. God is sovereign and over all our choices, or we've got free will. Both are true. No! I can't live with that. Hebrews. Jews can live with that. People in the East, no problem. They both are true. You, you see it happening. So it's fine that they're true. I need to move on. Is this helpful? Okay. Let's get into some of the notes because we immediately pick up some of this. What, I, what I'm trying to draw out through here are some themes um, which, again, remembering the Bible is a collection of stories and systematic theology so that takes those stories and systematizes it is a helpful way of reading scripture but not without neglecting this was a story, and we need to let the story speak to us too. So what do the themes of the prophets, what we see happening, tell us? Well, like I finished just before the break, one of the first things they tell us is that God isn't distant. God is very involved in the world. God speaks. God communicates. God wants a relationship. We could finish there and now worship. That's stunning. You know, all these figures that were up here, real people that lived some who spoke for years, Jeremiah, over 40 years. Others who just spoke three or four times in a very short period of time about a specific city. Is God stepping into our creation, his creation, into our world and speaking and making himself known? A God who's really involved. A God who didn't just make it and is now waiting until the end. A God who, well, I'm working in the Muslim world, Allah, you can't get near him. The Christian God of the Bible is a very different revelation. Right in the beginning, we see this. Adam and Eve sin. They hide. They're shamed. They're naked. They make a, where's God? Adam! Where are you? God knows where Adam is. He comes looking. He calls his name. And the prophets show us this. God's called your name. You can identify what's happening with the prophets at this level. Some of it is detail. There's history. What's going on? When was this fulfilled? Step back a bit. God speaks. And God's involved, and God's active, very involved. He's not distant. God making himself known, reveals himself. We have a God of revelation. When you've looked at 
the doctrine of God. This should have been one of the things that has come through, a God who reveals himself. We wouldn't know God if it wasn't for this. We wouldn't know anything about him, but he makes himself known in what were very culturally appropriate ways at the time. Looking back from 21st century culture with how our knowledge works and, and, and how our worldview is, it's hard for us to relate to these people standing up and talking. That people, that, that happened. These were people who were known in their communities. They, God is, comes into a context and makes himself known through that context. That's what he does. Reveals himself through people so that we can understand. That's why he became sent his son, became person, became flesh. That's God. The prophets are foreshadowing that. The God who speaks, the God who reveals himself, the God who makes himself known. What can we learn then from the prophets about God? There's not time to cover all of this, but just some things. You learn about his character, his holiness. You learn about what matters to God, what's on God's heart, what makes God tick, the things he's passionate about. The prophets tell us an awful lot about God, which means you can know him. Because they tell us about his heart, the things that matter to him, how he feels about things. You know, the emotions aren't just prophets having a bad day. They're God's emotions. It's what God feels. God is passionate. God is holy. God is, wants to bring justice for the poor and for the oppressed. He feels these things. It's not just a written oracle. And th- this is God's passion and God's heart. You look at some, and it's in your notes, those verses from Ezekiel, um, and Ezekiel's vision. I won't read it. Um, I mean, I've probably got time. It's part of what Ezekiel saw. He had several visions, but this one in chapter 1. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked something like a vault, sparkling like crystal and awesome. Under the vault, their wings were stretched out towards one another. Each had two wings covering its body. These are creatures that he's seen. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters. Well, this isn't a pigeon flapping its wings then, is it? This is a roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. So this is a pretty full-on 3D surround sound encounter, Ezekiel. It's not just a little picture. What a picture of light and, and colours. Now, this is pretty intense and full-on. Then there came a voice from above the vault, over their heads, and they stood with lowered wings. Above the vault, over their heads, was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli, its jewels and colours. High above the throne was a figure of that of a man. I saw from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire. So I think we're getting fire. It's fire from up here, fire from down there. Brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down. And then part of the vision is there's wheels within wheels. And whichever way the creatures go, the wheels go. The wheels have got eyes all around them. I mean, it's just incredible. It's God making himself known. And it was so awesome and so glorious and so phenomenal. It says in the story, Ezekiel sat still for a week. Just sat. Didn't speak. Such was his encounter with God. And just in that vision, God is revealing his awe and his splendor. And even though there's all these things going on, Ezekiel's pretty clear. You know, there was one like a man that was on fire, colors of the rainbow, a voice of the Lord like the Lord Almighty. And Ezekiel says it was like him, so it's not him. And you get this in some of these prophetic visions. 
Um, and this is reminiscent a little bit of John's vision of Jesus on fire in Revelation. Um, it's like, I've seen God, but I've not seen God. It's like God, because God is so huge and so awesome, and creation teaches us that. You know, we struggle with some of these visions and think, oh, how did Ezekiel get that? And you think, come on, wake up. We have been so conditioned in our worldview by the Enlightenment, by science, specific discovery, and rationality. We think we understand all this. How arrogant. I mean, it's amazing when you listen to, to some of the things that get said on our media. I remember listening, those were, this was a few years back, just in the car, Radio 4. Um, there'd just been a story about how laughable it was that a school was still teaching creation and, and shouldn't they be told to stop? Um, and then the next story was about the effects that medicines can have on the body and a particular fairly standard medical treatment, but there were side effects. And they're talking to a doctor, and he said, no, we don't understand yet um, the effects that this has on the body. And you think, so you can get the body in the laboratory, you can examine it, test it, test tubes, microscopes, everything else, um, and as a qualified doctor, go on the media and say, we don't understand yet, but we're pretty convinced how the universe got here, which we can't put in a laboratory and test and test tube it. And it was just a contradiction. And I'm not making a comment on whether or not creation story in the Bible is literal and the place... I'm not making a comment. I'm making a comment about the arrogance. That's what I'm making a comment on, that we think we know, and yet there's things we can observe that actually we still do not know. Um, and you watch some of the nature... Pro I remember one of the nature programs, deep down, they send a camera down to the deepest part of the ocean and they find these glowing creatures that were like seahorses but not seahorses. And they've never been seen before. And they film them, you may have seen this clip a couple of years ago, doing this perfect kind of synchronised dance around each other. And the commentator is saying, we've got no idea why they do this. And we've only just discovered them. And you still think you know? Just the arrogance. So when God turns up and displays himself, it's not surprising that you kind of think, wheels, eyes, fire, lightning, it's like him, but it's not him. Voice like rushing waters. One of the things that God makes clear through this story of stories is he's powerful. We're made in his image, but we're nothing like him. He spoke, and the Himalayas came about. She was having a chat. Let there be these incredible mountains. Psalm talks about God flinging stars into space, and science is still trying to count them. You can go on... Sorry, this is all... We've probably got time. You go on the Hubble telescope pages. I haven't. My friend has. And, um, and see some of the pictures and see some of the things that the Hubble telescope's been doing. And one of the stories on there is that they focused on a tiny piece of space the size of a pinprick, like the size of one star that we would see from Earth. Um, it took them 52 hours to take the photo. That's how long they did the exposure for just focusing on that. Then they developed it. And then in that little pinprick, they counted 10,000, more than 10,000. Not stars, galaxies. That's there, it's on the Hubble Telecoat webpage. Galaxies, 10,000 of them. And we still think we know? One of the big messages of the prophets is we don't know, but God does big message of the prophets is, why are you trying to live your life separate from him? He's given you these laws. He's made himself known to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses. He's made a covenant with you. You know this God. 
He appeared to your forefathers through visions. He met with Moses on the mountain. And you still think you know? You still going to worship other gods? This is the message of the prophets. And this awesome power and nature of God needs recovering the church today. It's on what you were saying, Heather. Yeah, he's a God of love. Come back to that. But actually what the Bible starts with is he's extremely powerful. That's what Genesis 1, one of the things Genesis 1 is teaching. In the beginning, God, and he spoke. Any God who can do that by having a chat is pretty unique and powerful. And Genesis teaches us there weren't other gods. There's just this God. Just there. And the prophets are reiterating that. And yes, you get beautiful stories like Hosea. Isn't it? Oh, God. Jesus. It's so beautiful. That this awesome, powerful God then says to Hosea, go and take a prostitute and marry her and live in your city like that. Because that's what I'm like. I've made myself known. Remember that the whole story is there. We section it off and we forget that this is against the backdrop, which is why I gave you at the beginning of the big story. Because oral people would live with that story in their heads all the time. They wouldn't have to get the scroll out and think, hang on a minute, how did we get here? What's this? No, they would live with that. So you're telling us, Hosea, that you've married, excuse my language, I'm going to make a point, this slag, this woman of immorality, we all know what she's doing. Even, even now, Hosea, last night she was with that other man at the gate, waiting at the gate for a man to take her home. You've married her, you're trying to tell me that that's what God's like? Yes, Hosea, it's exactly what God's like. More importantly, it's what you're like, that's what Israel's like. And this is God's love and faithfulness, and you've rejected him again and again, and you've taken other husbands and worshipped other gods. But God is faithful to you. This holy, awesome God that's like fire. These creatures around him flap their wings and it's like rushing water. This holy, awesome God says, I will still love you, even though you're unfaithful to me. And the prophets teach us that both of these things are true. And the church needs to hold both of those things. This fear of God and this intimacy of God. The fact that Ananias and Sapphira are a mystery. What's going on there? And yet a God of love and faithfulness who gave his son and held nothing back. That's what the prophets are talking to us about. Also that he's a God who in his holiness and righteousness loves justice and mercy. Mercy. So just mentioning again what I said earlier. Today there can be two views of God, but in the church as well as in the world. That you get this angry, at best grumpy God who causes bad things to happen. He can't be a God of love, why is there suffering? Um, he doesn't stop bad things. Um, any of you, I mean, he's getting old now, Eddie Izzard, comedian, any fans in the room? Um, I th- love his comedy. Um, but he's got this thing which he constantly brings up. My brother got me tickets, I think it was last Christmas, Christmas before to go and see him, and he brought it up again in his latest live show. You know, it, it, how can it be a God? Why didn't he just flick off the head of Hitler? And, and it's a real problem for Eddie Izzard because he brings it up regularly through his career. You know, if there is a God, why didn't he just look at Hitler and flick his head off? And you think, oh. So you get that view, that kind of how can there be a God? Uh, and then when you read the Old Testament, and of course Stephen Fry would be another one who's kind of commented on all of that. Um, and then you get the view that he's loving, kind, helps us, protects us from bad things. Some of that strays into almost the sense of a kind of a cuddly father figure that wants to love on you and come close and be intimate with you. Worship songs talking about kisses um, and that kind of thing. Some people would then go as far, not in our tradition, that he's so loving. (laughs) A 
okay, try and live a good life, but if you don't, he'll forgive you when you get there. Sin doesn't matter that much, you know, if God's that loving. So you get these two views, all of which kind of have extremes. But sometimes in the church, in our churches, we're, we're not always clear. Or we're not clear, how, how do we convey this to the world? We may be clear and think, yeah, I can see the Bible's, you know, these things are there. But how do we can convey that to the world? Well, some of this comes through in the prophets. Um, Amos, this kind of shepherd um, prophet and talking about a sh- uh, heart for the poor. And God says this, Away with the noise of your songs. I won't listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. That's a beautiful passage. Yeah, that's what God wants. He wants justice in the earth. And he's called a people to be just. So stop singing and don't care for the poor. I'll finish there and we'll... <laughs> That's what Amos is saying. Well, you're not living this out. Why do you keep singing to me? We'll come back to that later. And then you get Micah, another one of these smaller prophets. Who is a God like you? Who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever. You delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities in the depth of the sea. Beautiful. Isaiah, language of slaughtering people if they don't turn back to him. Cities being destroyed. And then prophesying, but one will come and he will be crushed. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Different prophecy, but from Isaiah. So the prophets have both of these things. It's real. I love this quote. I think you've got it in full there. What we need to make clear... This is an American author, hence bumper stickers, car stickers. And culture current writings is that the love that wins is a holy love. The love that won on the cross and wins the world is a love that is driven, determined, and defined by holiness. It is a love that flows out of the heart of a God who is transcendent, majestic, infinite in righteousness, who loves justice as much as he does mercy, who hates wickedness as much as he loves goodness, who blazes with a fiery, passionate love for himself above all things. He is creator, sustainer, beginning and end. He is robed in a splendor and eternal purity that is blinding. He rules, he reigns, he rages and roars, then bends down to whisper love songs to his creatures. Isn't that beautiful? Um, and there's lots of writers who have written like that. This is just one I wrote. Um, I haven't put in there where it's from, have I? It's an American author from the book. I love the title, The God Who Smokes. And it's all about this burning passion. Um, He's writing in response to another well-known American pastor who wrote a book, Love Wins, um, who seems to be saying that God will forgive anything when when we get there. Um, And we've we've got to give the message to the world that that God is a God of love. Some of it's a reaction against a time which can still happen today, but was certainly happening 30, 40, 50 years ago in kind of evangelicalism. So churches like ours where God is holy, repent. God hates that behavior. And obviously sexual behavior was part of that, but other behaviors would have been. And, and the world was getting a message that God really is very, very angry. Um, and so I'm not going to go anywhere near him. And so numbers of what's happened in England as well, numbers of preachers have kind of said, oh, this is the message. It's love, it's love, it's love. But love without the holiness isn't love. Love and truth go together. There's one author um, in a book, brilliant book, called Love Wars, just come out. Um, 
He's, he would identify himself as gay, um, hated the church, was setting out to try and prove from the Bible that the church, some part of the church's message um, against same-sex attraction was totally wrong. And in the process, some Christians close to him just loved him, cared for him, took him into their home, um, and he met Jesus in an amazing way. And uh, him arguing on some of this stuff from a kind of gender point of view, he says, you know, love without truth isn't love. Truth without love, dot, 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 isn't true. Um, And as that quote says, and I think as the prophets teach us, we have to land there. And in the end, a bit like Paul, where Paul writes about other mysteries of God in terms of in Romans kind of 9 through to 11, about how God's covenant with Israel and then their hearts being hardened and things like where he hardens Pharaoh's heart. Hang on, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's a bit unfair on Pharaoh, who then lost his son. And and Paul ends up just worshipping, saying this is the mystery. And, And in the end, for me, yeah, I think there's plenty of scriptures which we can really reason with, stories in scripture that can show the compassion and love of God. But in the end, if we take away all the mystery... That's not a God I want to worship. Because he just reduces us to someone a bit bigger and a bit stronger and a bit better than us. And that's not the God of the Bible. And I think we have to live with both. And I think for us, as a a group, family of churches, um, let's make sure we begin to recover some of this awe of God without losing any of that he's a loving father who has adopted you and made all of this and rules over all of this in order that he can know you intimately. That's the message. I'll pause. Is that landing all right? I mean, I, I realise with everyone saying yes, if you're thinking no, you may want to be quiet. <laughs> but this is so important. I don't mind taking questions or clarifications. And this can be deeply... I'll, I'll come to you. I'll just, I'll just say this can be deeply personal. Do you think, yeah, this is great, but my mum died of cancer. Where's God's love in that? So this is important stuff. Yes. Yes, I agree. Totally. And there's even a film about him being called a heretic now. Um, do you think that actually the church is not being very loving towards him? Did yeah, you, no, I agree. agree with that? Yeah, not, yes, I would. So not just Rob, but you've only got to look at... Um, Steve Chalk having a similar incident about 10 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so... And this can be more prevalent in the States, but we can do it in America. I think this, the Christian church scene in, in the States is, is quite different in some ways how it handles this. But the stuff that goes online, when, when someone says something which others don't like, or someone f- sins and that, that comes into the public, some of the stuff that gets said is abhorrent. Yeah. You kind of think, you know, we talk about a loving God, and we argue about what that means, and then what we tweet and what we respond with on social media is, so I totally agree with you. And I, I do agree um, that, that some of what Rob Bell has said has been misrepresented. Um, 
but also when part of the difficulty seemed to be that both him and Steve Chalk and others were kind of questioned and saying, well, but do you still believe this? They wouldn't come out clearly. Now, it could be because then they don't want to be seen as going to the other point of their argument. But that's where it gets difficult with some of these people in, in all kinds of things theologically. It's not just about love or fear of God or God's justice. You know, this, this happened with a, I've forgotten her name, but a worship leader the other, the other week, a well-known American worship leader, she's popular here now, and they said to her, what do you think on homosexuality? Is it a sin? And she refused to answer it in that way. And some people have come out and said, hang on, you're evangelical, you should have been clear. Don't worry about the backlash, you should have been clear. Others have said she was really wise not being clear, because then she'll just get categorised, that will become the story. Um, so we, in the end, I think we have to be slow to make a judgment, be provoked by what people are teaching and do what we're doing today. Get into scripture, reason it through, stay humble, but have a clear conviction ourselves. Because the other thing that can happen in, with some of this stuff is it can all be terribly confusing. Well, this leader who I admire says this, this leader says this, this leader says, ah, do you want that someone just make it clear? Why isn't it clear in scripture? I think there are lots of things that are clear in scripture. Um, and we need to work hard together, help one another, and then make sure we're humble in what we conclude. What is true, what I think is true, is that has definitely been a cultural drift in the tradition which we're a part of in terms of reformed evangelical Christianity, which is a reaction to how badly some things were conveyed, how the church was seen, how we were conveying the gospel. Um, and some people are trying to make the gospel attractive in a way that actually we don't have to. Because in the end, Jesus died on a cross and it was God who put him there. And that's clear. You can't get round it. And if we try and soften that, that's not our job. What's more powerful than what we should be provoked by, and this is where I'll land today in only eight minutes, nine minutes, is we need to live in a way which conveys the justice and love of God, regardless of what we say. And that, I think, is a bigger challenge for us. So, yeah, we've got to you know, think, well, what was Rob Bell meaning or Steve Chalk or these others? But in the end, what the prophets are saying is, come on, live within this covenant. Live faithful to God. Um, and the ch I'm jumping ahead now, but it doesn't matter. The church is a prophetic community. And the world should be able to look at us and see, yes, there's truth. We're not just up for anything. Otherwise, what's our we're no different than lots of other groups or institutions out there. No, there is truth. But it's lived out with love and acceptance and mercy. Um, that's what the world needs to see. And if we're saying there's truth and, and we live in that way, then some of us will end up in prison. And some of our churches might be popular. But lots of people who know they're broken and are looking for love will come and find us. Because that's what happened to Jesus. He stood up for the revelation of Scripture. He stood up to say, no, this, this is God's message. And God has come for the excluded. You've excluded them. And you've used the law to do so. You're wrong. And Jesus hung out with the people that, sadly, the supposedly his people representing the message from God had excluded 
Um, and they stood against him. Of course, they put him on a cross in the end. But you'd always find Jesus with people around him who were looking for love and acceptance. And the church should be the same. I'm going to move us on just for the sake of time. Um, but yeah, I agree in terms of misrepresentation. And that's not arguing over love in an incredibly unloving way. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. I totally agree. Totally agree. I'm not against social media, but it's one of the reasons why I don't use it. And there's a lot of good that can come out of it. I get that, but it just... Anyway, another five minutes or so. Let's kind of get through some of this. Another one of the main things is God wants the people. It's clear and clear, you know, prophets coming for a people um, in covenant relationship with him, a people who he loves, people who love him. Not simply know about him, but in deep relationship with him. Hosea teaches us that. The prophets who were saying, return to me. It wasn't simply obey the law. And if you don't, bad things will happen. Return to me. Know me. God wants relationship. It's there in the prophets. And again, we can miss that um, because we can only sometimes focus on some of the judgment things and think, oh, what does this mean? But actually, again and again, is this voice saying God wants a deep relationship with him. The prophets reveal the strength of this desire. It's a burning passion. God wants to have a people. Um, We've seen that in Hosea, so I'll skip over some of that. But even the language there in chapter 2, you will call me my husband. You no longer be my master. It's a language of marriage and love. That's who this God is. You won't simply be master and there's laws. It will be husband and wife, the church, the bride of Christ. I will betroth you to me forever. This is who the prophets are making us known. Justice rolling on like a river, but also betrothed in covenant relationship. Prophets promise a new day. Touched on that a little bit um, when we line them up here. In the, in the middle of sin and compromise, God announces what he's going to do. So there will be a new king. There will be a new kingdom. Um, there will be deserts springing into life. Where there's been death, there will be life. Um, where there's been oppression, there will be justice. Um, talks about, the, you know, obviously Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, Zechariah 9, king riding on a donkey. Jesus fulfills that. Um, so all of these things, uh, some of these prophetic revelations are pointing forward. A new temple. Um, Haggai 2, I refer to that again when they were up the front. Greater glory. But actually, that's the church. One of the things um, I was going to say a bit later, I'll say it now. The way we understand Old Testament prophecy is through New Testament. Because lots of us, if we'd have been God's people listening to the prophets, we'd have expected enemies destroyed. We'd have expected the king, when he comes, to be like David and come with chariots and come with an army. We wouldn't have received Jesus either. But when you see that Jesus has come, understand the enemy that was going to be destroyed at that time was death. Um, And understand through Jesus' teachings, you think, ah, he was the Messiah. Of course, that's the journey the disciples are on. And then when it comes to who this message is for, Paul then unpacks this. You see this in Ephesians and others of his letters. This is good news for the Gentiles as well, that God is now fulfilling uh, the prophecies that are in Isaiah about the nations coming. And Israel, and of course this is the battle in the New Testament, um, 
in passages in Acts and in some of the things that Paul and Peter have to write about is, okay, well, the Gentiles can come, but they have to follow the law and they have to be circumcised. And Paul argues in Romans, no, (laughs) it was Abraham's faith. It wasn't circumcision that made Abraham righteous. It was faith. And so the message of Jesus now and the fulfillment of the law in him and the fulfillment of the prophecies is this is good news for all the peoples. But it's faith in Jesus. They don't have to become Jew. Um, the prophet Isaiah, there's prophecies talking about a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. And again, people wouldn't have understood quite what that meant until you get John's vision in Revelation, where John sees this new heaven and new earth. So what God's justice and righteousness will look like is in the end, there'll be a new creation. We are the first fruits of that, Paul says. Well, that isn't just Paul having revelation now. Part of what Paul did, you know, know Paul's story... So what time do I finish? Yeah, Quarter past. Yeah, sorry, just misread my clock. So Paul would have been, when he was off for years before he came back on, so Jesus appears to him, but it, you read in part of Paul's story, he goes off and is away um, for some years before he comes on the public scene again. Barnabas goes to get him and brings him to Antioch. It's thought that part of what Paul would have been doing is receiving some of the things, the revelation and understanding that he then went to teach in terms of who are the people of God, the fact that don't have to be circumcised. Where did he, the fact that um, we're new creations, we're the first, where did he get that from? Paul would have sat with scrolls and would have talked to some of the disciples and eyewitnesses of Jesus and would have wrestled this through. Paul is giving us a commentary of the fulfillment of some of the prophets. It didn't just come to him as kind of new revelation. Paul just sitting and having a dream and a vision. Paul would have sat doing what we're doing today. He'd have had scrolls. He'd have studied. He'd have read Isaiah. Is this, oh, Jesus said, is Jesus now fulfilling this? You get Paul quoting in Acts 13, where it says in Isaiah 49, it's too small a thing for you just to restore Judah, but the ends of the earth and the Gentiles. So Paul quotes that. When he's in Antioch in, in southern Turkey, and says, what we're seeing here is Gentiles put their faith in Jesus. That's what Isaiah talked about. So Paul would have wrestled with these scriptures, getting revelation, the Holy Spirit speaking to him, but it was coming out of him, his knowledge as a great rabbi, which he was, and teacher. And he wrestled this through, and the Holy Spirit spoke to him. So he drew conclusions, not in isolation, but through doing hermeneutics, if you like, on the prophets and say, ah, this is what Isaiah's talking about. That's what Jesus is fulfilling. And you people, um, that's that too small a thing thing, I've just quoted that. Um, A huge one to throw out as we finish. Um, So many prophecies talk about Israel returning to the land, talk about the temple being great, their enemies being destroyed. So there's a huge section because of teaching that's gone on in, in the past and how people understand something called dispensationalism. So God has Israel, then he has the church, but then we'll go back to Israel being restored and they'll be back in the land and, and all of this. That's one way to kind of read the prophecies. But it neglects so much of what the New Testament teaches, like Paul in Ephesians 2, where actually we're made one together. The Gentiles are brought into the covenant promises. Um, and so the church is a new creation. It hasn't existed before. Jew and Gentile, God's doing a new thing. So you understand the Old Testament promises given to Israel through what the New Testament says. And Paul 
says it's now the whole earth. And Jesus says it's now the whole earth. It's not just a piece of land in the Middle East. Um, and it's Jew and Gentile together. Where the new creation... This is the temple now. So when Haggai says about a temple of greater glory, and you think, how can you get a temple even greater than what Solomon's was? Because it was incredible. And the doors were the width of this room, almost. And it was a huge place. Imagine the heating bill for that place. That's what was in the Middle East, not in England. So... <laughs> There's very good reasons why God unfolded the story in the Middle East. No winter. Um, <laughs> although it is 45 degrees, that's hard work. So, you know, how can you have a temple more glorious? Than, it's not talking about a physical temple. It's talking about the church. But you don't know that until you get to the New Testament. Now, some people would argue around the Israel thing, yes, we agree with all of that, but some of the promises could still be fulfilled and it may be that we see a returning to the land where God does do something in the Middle East that, suit, that fits some of these, these prophecies. There'll be people within our group of churches that would go with that, that would say, no, hang on, not all the promises around the land are figurative um, and fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. I don't go there. I think it's easier to say they all are, and it seems to me that that's where Paul goes. But you will find that mix. So, of course, Trump and everything that he represents, he had to come up at some point today um, in, in declaring that his embassy, you know, the embassy um, is moving back into Jerusalem. The Australians declared that yesterday. They're not going to move the embassy, but they recognise part of Jerusalem. Um, is, some of that is all around biblical prophecy. But the New Testament seems to take a different reading of it. Um, I know that's a huge subject. I'm just throwing it in there before we have coffee. But it's important because it comes out of what the prophets are saying, and Paul and the writer to the Hebrews interprets these things differently. But like Paul says in Romans, there will be a great turning of God's old covenant people, the Jews, to Jesus, and we should pray for that. Because the other danger is to say, oh, it's all, God's finished now, it's the church. No, he hasn't. He loves these people. He's betrothed himself to them. And we get to get included on that. But meanwhile, let's pray that they come back too. Does that make sense? That's, that's clearly where Paul lands. So regardless of what you think about a piece of land, that's definitely where we should land. Come on, Israel, as well as all the other nations. But they've got a history. There's some promises not fulfilled. We need to pray for them. Okay. Let's tie this up. What do we see from the prophets? God is holy. God is just. God is incredibly loving and faithful and merciful and more loving and merciful than we can understand in human terms and that one of the things we get into a little bit of mess on is when we try and kind of answer our culture's questions around well God's God of judgment where's love is we think of love in terms of human terms there's no more pure revelation of love than God and what God did in his son Jesus so God is a God of love and a God of mercy God is for the oppressed so many prophecies about the oppressed, about where there's injustice, about the poor, and about God's people needing to care for them and demonstrate his love for them. It's very clear that God is making and will make the world just. The ultimate answer around why is there so much suffering and pain and earthquakes and natural disaster is that grieves God's heart too. And God will make a new heaven and a new earth. But meanwhile, he wants to win as many people into a covenant love relationship with him before that comes. Because when God's full justice comes, nothing will be left. And because he, he's a God of mercy, 
He's waiting till as many as possible have come. That's what the prophets teach us. And his plan is to bring this about through his people, bring them into a covenant relationship with him who then live and demonstrate to the world that there's a God of love and a God of justice and a God of judgment is real. It will come. But there's a way to turn to him and know him. There's a way to live fully human as you're designed to be, flawed until he comes again, but you can know love and forgiveness and be in relationship with him. Teaches us that he does discipline his people. Um, clearly, sends prophets to him, says, come on, come back. If you don't, another nation will come and take your land. Come back. So, and that's the theme in the New Testament we said earlier. And he promises a new king, a new kingdom, and a new covenant. That's your summary. All those things are there in the prophets. Other parts of scripture too, but they're all there in the, in the prophets. So, just to be, land this a little bit, who's, the prophets were writing scripture. When we look at gifts of the Spirit in a bit, um, prophecies different then, functions differently. These people were, in the end, their revelations were deemed by the community to be revelation from God and got written down and became scripture. So they were speaking for God and it became scripture. But who speaks for God now? Now Hebrews tells us God has spoken fully through his son Jesus. But who makes Jesus known? We do. The church is meant to be a prophetic community. So those who speak about and model and live justice and righteousness and love and mercy. So if we're going to really engage with the prophets, it should be provoking us as communities of Jesus followers who fulfills the prophets that the world gets to see in us something prophetic, meaning something which points beyond itself, something which points to God and how God designed the world. The church is meant to be this prophetic community that loves justice, loves righteousness, is for the oppressed, is for the poor. The church which shows to the world there is another way, a better way, it's God's way. That shows to the world that he is holy, he doesn't ignore sin. He burns with love though, and if you come to him, he will forgive sin. He won't just let you off. He'll do something even better. He'll change your heart so you don't sin anymore. He'll adopt you into his family, fill you with his presence, his Holy Spirit, so you have power not to sin anymore. That's one of the reasons the Holy Spirit is given. So you have power and fire that changes your desires, a new heart, so you don't have to live and chase those things anymore. This is a God of love and a God of holiness. He doesn't just say, come on, be holy. It's like the prophet says, both Jeremiah and Ezekiel. He'll change your heart. Write his law on your heart so that what's in you is holiness. And you want to live out, in, you want to live that out. That's the message. Not a God who's going to throw rocks at you. Stop sinning, man, throwing rocks at you. No, God says there's a different way. If you don't come, I will end this because I'm going to bring justice. And where I end it, it will be horrible. And you'll get caught up in that. And I don't want that. So I've made a way for you to come. And not just a way that you then got to live different, but my love will flood your heart and my spirit will burn in you so you can live different. What does it mean then? We could land this on so many places, but I've got to finish. It's just gone 20 past. What does it mean for the church to exercise justice and not spend all its time worshipping? Why have we got a worship industry that makes millions every year? And yet there's still homeless people in our city that don't know Jesus. I think the churches, the worldwide church, the Western church has still got some things wrong. Don't get me wrong, I listen to worship music. 
it moves my heart, it helps me in the middle of busyness, draw me close to my father, so I listen to worship music, and I buy worship music, although I haven't bought any for ages. So I'm not saying it shouldn't exist. But when you look at the millions that go into all of that, you look at the amount of money that we'll invest, partly in the name of kind of being culturally appropriate in terms of our sound systems, our light systems, and everything else that people can walk in and think, oh, wow, the church are up to date. They know what they're doing, don't they? I'm not saying we should neglect that. But what we definitely need to recover is a prophetic community that loves the poor, that cares for the oppressed, that is a voice for them and says this is the God that we follow and we worship. And by all means, let's do that and have music and worship in a way the world can engage with. But we're neglecting one, and it needs restoring. That's what I think the, pref- the prophets can provoke us on today, as well as keep reminding us that God has fulfilled his word, has sent his son, and he is faithful. So any time that you wake up in the morning and you feel <coughs> depressed or you feel far from God, or you feel that you have sinned and you're not feeling close to him, Let the prophets remind you he's faithful. He's paid the price. You can run to him and he will receive you. And there is full restoration for you. Those are the two messages I'd like you to take away from this morning.